Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, how do we feel about our healthcare workers post-COVID-19? Enough to pay them more? There is some light at the end of the tunnel. However, we still must continue to self-distance. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, COVID-19 has impacted a lot. We talked earlier on uh, in regard to uh, the facility that was set up uh, by Good Shepherd in the First Ontario uh, Centre in order to help alleviate some of the pressures and just give people some space. Uh, Al, let's bring in Alan Whittle of Good Shepherd uh, and talk about the COVID-19 impact that it has had on uh, of course, Good Shepherd and a lot of these uh, facilities in and around the city, the province and across the country. Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you're doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. Yes, I'm, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. And I hope so, so for you. Yeah, we're all trying to get by as best we can here, Alan. Tell us about life at Good Shepherd. What's it been like over this pandemic? Well, you know what? It's, um, it's it's been a challenge. Uh, I mean, we're seeing you know across the organization on a typical day, somewhere between thirty eight hundred and four thousand you know individuals that uh, we're supporting in one fashion or another. So, um, all of our staff uh, are working really hard to do that. And you know, when we talk about the front lines, uh, um, you know, that's where our staff are in terms of dealing directly with the community. Uh, and we, uh, we were talking earlier last week about the addition of First Ontario Centre. How has that helped uh, and, again, presented more challenges for you? Sure. I mean, what we're, what we're seeing now is, uh, you know, as that uh, new facility has come into play, we're, we're now uh, fully occupied there. Uh, last night there were uh, 74 uh, beds available and they were all occupied. Um, we're in sort of a bit of a holding pattern at that facility at the moment as uh, some additional uh, folks are channeled into hotel rooms, but we have another 75 uh, beds that we can put up and uh, expand the program at First Ontario if needed. All right, so how has this affected Good Shepherd as far as cases and, and, and that sort of thing? How are you holding up? You know, we're, we're doing okay. I mean, we've had some staff who've uh, tested positive, um, uh, primarily through, again, community contact, not so much uh, as far as we know. Of course, we never know these things completely, but uh, not from any of our client interactions, but from other interactions in the community. So that's, that's put a bit of a strain on things, you know, because uh, of the nature of the illness. You know, people sometimes have to uh, stay away uh, from work in order to, to be tested and then make sure that they're uh, they're negative, uh, that kind of thing. So, and we've had a very aggressive uh, testing program uh, uh, where appropriate. And with with a staff member uh, 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 coming down with this testing positive, what what does that mean for the rest of this the staff? What does that mean for Good Shepherd Center? How does that change protocols? Sure. What what we do is in that particular situation, if um, is we will test all the staff in that program. Uh, we will especially 
uh, start with anybody that may have been in close contact with the individual. Um, and if the individual has been actually at work uh, in any recent, recent time period, we will then proceed with disinfecting uh, the workplace, that kind of thing. And as well, uh, actually the first priority is our clients. And so um, they get tested uh, if there's been any chance that they've uh, encountered the individual who tested positive. So, you know, we've, we've done that in a number of situations. And we've also been working with uh, the, uh, the Shelter Health Network team uh, who've been proactively out uh, testing, for example, all those at First Ontario, uh, all of our uh, guests there uh, have been tested uh, uh, just to make sure. Wow, that's, you know, when you think about the amount of, of, of people that go through the Good Shepherd, it must be incredibly difficult to manage. It, it, you know what, this is uh, straining us uh, in, in so many ways, but, you know, thankfully, you know, we're a large enough organization that we have the infrastructure that we're able to, to make this work, that we're able to sort of take those, you know, risks when, so when, you know, the, when the city asks us to, you know, can you step up and do something, you know, we're able to do that, and uh, hopefully that's of benefit to the larger community as well. Uh, you were talking about First Ontario and, and, and I believe it was 50 initial beds that were set up there uh, and room for more. What is the chance that w- that will have to be expanded at that facility? Well, we already have bumped it up to 74 and, and so they're fully occupied now. Um, and we have an additional 75 beds uh, in the waiting should we need them. And, and um, you know, I think that's probably uh, a little bit of ways because we're, we also have working with, with mission services who are um, taking some additional folks and putting them in hotel spaces. And so that's where the, the next group of people are going. So uh, that will probably be the next uh, 20-odd folks will probably go into a hotel. What does Good Shepherd and facilities like yours, what, what do they need from us? What can we do to help at this time? Well, clearly, um, you know, reduce the, the, the chance of transmission of uh, COVID-19 is uh, uh, obviously very high on the list for, for everyone who works on the front lines. Um, and, and clearly, this is a time when certain kinds of donations uh, we're not getting. So, you know, Easter was a traditional time for us to do major uh, food drive to take us through uh, into summer. Clearly, that didn't happen because schools were closed, churches were closed. Uh, so now we're relying upon... Uh, cash donations to go out and, and purchase the food that we're uh, that we need across the organization because in addition to those that uh, come to our food bank for food we're also still providing you know meals to uh, people who have no cooking facilities uh, who come to our uh, men's center to uh, to get a bagged lunch at this point um, but then we also still provide food for uh, uh, all the folks who are uh, in our emergency shelters and, and other programs so it's it's an ongoing challenge to to create that and, and to get all the resources we need uh, and we've certainly heard uh, the same concerns from many organizations similar to yours, including uh, food banks. So is the best thing to make a cash donation? Is that, uh, I guess now, considering these times of, of self-distancing and such, a uh, physical drop-off sort of thing, is, is that is that still being accepted, or is cash the best way to go here? 
I mean, clearly we are accepting, you know, physical uh, drop-off. But, um, you know, at this point, I think, given the circumstances, you know, cash donations is really the best way to go uh, for whomever you want to support in the community. Because um, clearly, you know, we're able to often negotiate a far better price than what somebody can get, you know, through their local grocery store, uh, perhaps from the same grocery store that uh, they're prepared to give us a better price. So, um, you know, the dollar goes much further um, working with us. So, Alan, how are the how are the people doing that not only run these places but are also using these facilities? How are they coping with all of this? Because you know it's a change in their life as as much as it is everybody else's. Yeah, and and you know, and I think like everybody else in the community, they're sort of feeling you know a little ground down uh, by this whole process, and and I think. Uh, added to that is the you know the daily challenge of of going in uh, to a place that uh, you know you're somewhat fearful of uh, at this point, uh, and you got that you know additional challenge uh, layered on top of everything else that might be going on in the community, and concern that you're going to take that home to loved ones uh, uh, or even potentially uh, infect uh, someone inadvertently that's uh, you're trying to assist. So you've got all that on top of it. And I think that's really taking a mental toll on, on folks at this point. And uh, we're trying to keep spirits buoyed. But I suspect at the end of this, uh, there will be a, a very large sigh of relief, uh, whatever that end is. Um, how do people, how are people responding to these changes uh, that they're going to have to go through? Uh, are, are, is everybody understanding and, and participating in social distancing as much as they can? I mean, uh, you know, here, here's a community where, you know, these people are alone as it is, and, and now we're telling them to, to, to self-distance and self-isolate even more. I mean, I, I can just think of the mental anguish involved there. Yeah, and, and, and clearly that is a challenge. But you know what? It, it, it truly is amazing um, how well people understand this, that, you know what, it, this is not a time uh, to, you know, be hanging out in groups and, and having a party or whatever. I mean, yes, there are exceptions, but they truly are the exceptions. And um, it's and, and, and in terms of our staff, I mean, um, you know, they've really stepped up. Uh, this is, you know, an opportunity for, for so many people to, you know, say that, you know, I can't do this. And most of our staff are, are showing up and they're giving their best effort. Uh, what about response from the public? I mean, you know, Good Shepherd, all of these great organizations, it's a challenge 12 months of the year for them to do the things that, that you say that you, your programs, fulfill your programs and, and all the different things that you do over the course uh, of a year. And it's always, uh, you know, a difficult challenge to, to meet those demands uh, financially and such. Um, has the response, has the, the feeling towards your sorts of organizations changed during times like this? We remember how divisive we were prior to COVID-19. Is this uniting us? You know, I, I think there is an element of that. Uh, I know clearly we've um, uh, seen a, a tremendous response from, uh, from folks and, you know, people are, are giving what they can. Um, 
and and I think that will carry on. I think the challenge will be ultimately as we sort of start to come out of this is you know all those uh, you know folks who uh, have had diminished incomes over the last little while uh, will continue to need assistance, and and uh, many other people won't have the resources to to give more. So I think that will be a challenge going forward as part of this. Uh, but I think at the moment um, this has united us in in, in a very concrete way. Uh, do you think it'll continue once this is all over? You know, I, I think um, it, it will uh, in in some ways because I, I think uh, what's happened, you know, as a result of this is uh, put a, a spotlight on those other parts of, of you know the kinds of work that get done in the community, whether it's in long-term care facilities or emergency shelters. Uh, there are people there who are work really hard, doing you know really important jobs, and. It's uh, it's tough on them, and uh, they're not necessarily the best paid folks, and they're showing up to work. And if people want to help, Alan, what do we do? How do we do that? Sure. You know what? They can uh, go online uh, to our website at uh, goodshepherdcenters.ca, and there's opportunities to donate that way. Um, they can uh, also call us uh, at uh, Nine zero five five two eight five eight seven seven, and uh, donate that way. Um, for the odd person, <laughs> put it in an envelope and uh, mail it in. All right, Alan Whittle has been with us of Good Shepherd, and of course, Good Shepherd uh, stepping up and doing everything they can uh, to help those that need it in our community in this time of COVID-19. And if you can support Good Shepherd or any of the other great facilities like theirs, uh, it would certainly be appreciated right now. Alan, thank you so much for your time. Good luck. And please pass along to all the great people at Good Shepherd. Uh, thank you so much for the help. Uh, people like you in times like this, we can't, we can't be thankful enough. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. And everyone stay safe. One of the discussions that has certainly opened up uh, during this time of COVID-19 is our health workers, our frontline workers, PSWs, uh, people who, uh, you know, do this tireless work every day and in some cases are, are paid minimum wage for for these uh, for these duties and such. We're certainly hearing uh, stories of personal health care workers who uh, are having to go to two and three different homes. Uh, that's not because they necessarily choose to. They're just trying to make a paycheck so they can get a couple of days here, a couple of days there, and a couple of days someplace else. Uh, and, of course, the province has, has clamped down on that during this pandemic. But the reasons for doing that is, is so they can make a living. So is it time to... Uh, redirect some of our our, our, our tax dollars and in, in closely and in, in much more closely examine uh, not only health care but but how we deal with seniors let's bring in natalie mara executive director ontario ontario health coalition and is with us now natalie thank you for the time much appreciated oh thank you for having me what do you think some of the discussions are going to be coming out of covid19 in regard to our health care workers well i certainly think i hope that for long-term care, there is, uh, even sooner than coming out of this, um, there is a discussion about improving the wages and working conditions because there really is no way to stabilize that workforce without doing that. And uh, at this point, there's a very, very severe shortage. There was before this. It's even worse now. And uh, and they, they, we need some actual policy something from the provincial government just leaving it up to the providers which is what's been happening so far is not enough they didn't do it before this they're not going to do it now so 
So, uh, so we need some policy that actually requires an improvement to the wages and working conditions. So why are the, why is there a shortage in this? Because you know, again, we hear we've certainly seen what's happened to the manufacturing industry. Uh, you, you know, uh, there there is certainly the need for for people to go to certain sectors, but not necessarily others. Why is there a shortage in healthcare? Do you think? Well, it's particularly in long term care and in home care. And the reason is that the wages just have fallen behind. In particular, in long-term care, we held um, roundtable meetings with more than 350 home administrators, PSWs, family council members, the people from the colleges that run the PSW programs. Many of them had been canceled over the last year because of low enrollment. They, what they told us was that the minimum wage had increased just slightly, but it was just enough that the wages elsewhere were closer to what the PSWs were making. And the work for PSWs is very, very hard. It's very heavy. There's a lot of violence in the homes, as you know, you've reported over time. And and we have about the homicides, the resident on resident homicides, the acuity, that is the heaviness and the complexity of the care needs of the residents has gone up and up and up. And the care levels have not gone up. And so it's backbreaking work. It's very heavy hard work. And uh, and so PSWs would graduate from the course. I mean, there are PSWs out there, but they're not working in long-term care. They would go into the homes. They wouldn't even last a week. And then mm. they'd leave for other jobs that, uh, you know, were better paid or even slightly lower paid in the community, but with far less of an injury rate, far less heavy and difficult to do. And so the pay just has not kept up with the conditions. And they also, a lot of them don't have benefits and I mean, even now you think of them going in there, a lot of them don't have sick benefits, you know, and they're going in, they're risking their lives, you know, their families' lives to work one part-time job because they've had to give up the other ones in order to take care of people. There is a lot of love that happens in the homes. You know, there's mm. it's a special person that can do that kind of work. Uh, and uh, And really, the compensation is not fair for them. It's exploitative, and that's what's been happening. Uh, talk about the options for personal care workers. You talked about a, a personal care worker goes to college, trains for this sort of thing. Um, and then what are the options coming out? Oh, well, there's all kinds of, I mean, there's agencies that hire them. There's uh, home care. There's long-term care. There are PSWs in hospitals now, um, in the school board. You know, there, there are all kinds of different jobs that PSWs can do. And that's what we heard, actually. When they left long-term care, we asked where where were they going. In a number of cases, we heard that they were going to the school board, but we also heard that they were going to retail or restaurants or bars, you know, where they could make tips and do better. Mm. So um, just, you know, all kinds of different places. You know, we've heard lots in and around PSWs and minimum wage um, and such. It just, you know, it, it just amazes me that a PSW is considered a minimum wage worker. You know, lots are chatting about raising the minimum wage to help PSWs. It's like, my goodness, is that the answer? Should not the, you know, how do you compare a health worker or a PSW um, with someone who may be working for minimum wage? I mean, they should be in a category that 
that's above that, should they not? Well above that with, again, opportunities considering the way the demographic is going. This is only going to become a greater problem. And and again, the need for more money, the need for more uh, bodies, the need for more uh, uh, spaces and such. It, It is a growing industry. Why are we not better managing this? Well, I think there's, there are two things. One is in long-term care, they're making above minimum wage, maybe 17 to 22 or $23 an hour at the very high end. Um, but it can take, we heard, 10 years to get a full-time job. So explain to me this. There was a severe shortage of PSWs. In fact, so severe that in every place we went, every long-term care home, every shift, was working short staff. They couldn't fill their staffing lines. And uh, and so they were working short, which just makes the shortages worse, right? It makes the work heavier. It means that people get injured more. It means that they leave more. So if there's such a severe shortage, why were the homes not able to schedule people full-time? Because they didn't want to schedule people full-time, right? Mm-hmm. That's what happened. The majority of the homes are for-profit. Um, the for-profits pay less. They have less benefits than the not-for-profits and the full and the publicly owned, the municipally owned. So wait, a, uh, let me just uh, let me just interrupt there, Natalie. So yeah. the one the ones that are for-profit are paying less. Yeah. That seems unbelievable, considering you know some of the the fees that they charge to have people in there. I mean, it's it's usually those that can afford it. It's amazing that those people that that are paying these unbelievable uh, fees to stay in some of these private places are are are, are having a, people working for them that that are some of the poorly poorest paid. That seems very odd. That's right. Well, they're for profit companies. I mean, they're. They're dominated by the, the largest chains. They're, they own more than 80% of the for-profits. Mm. And, you know, a couple of those are shareholder-owned. They're owned by people. The shares are owned by people who might live halfway around the world who don't care what the care right. level is for your grandmother or mine. They're in it to take as much money out as possible. That's the structure of for-profit long-term care. And so the issue is, and, you know, so the issue is that... Uh, that there needs to be obviously better regulation about actually getting the money to frontline care. Long-term care homes are subsidized by public funding, right, by government funding, and then people also pay accommodation fees. So for basic accommodation or semi-private or private, the the cost goes up, right? Right. And so all that money is pooled, both public and, and people's own individual money, and for-profit homes run on a structure of taking profit as well as providing the care. The nonprofits put all of the money back into the home. They provide extra services and so on if they have extra money. And the municipal homes are subsidized also by municipal taxpayers. And so they tend to have better wages, better working conditions, better benefits. There has been a funding issue from the province. For sure. Funding increases have been 2% for every year for as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. That's barely enough to keep up with inflation and certainly not enough to improve the staffing levels and the, you know, the wages and the working conditions of the staff. Um, So there's a provincial funding issue, but also in the for-profits, you compound that they take profits out and that has to come from somewhere. Where do you see this going, Melanie or Natalie? Sorry, where do you see this going? Well, we've been pushing very hard, and I'm very, very disappointed. You know, you hear the tone that Doug Ford is taking is a is a good tone, and I'm so happy they're not opening things up 
uh, quickly here, you know, not, not happy because people are going through a hardship, but because this could be much, much worse than it is. But in long-term care homes, it's hard to conceive of how it could be worse than it is. Um, people are getting sick. They're dying by the dozens. It's awful to watch. We are compiling the list. And Scott, I have to tell you, it makes you cry to put it together, you know, every every day when you look at the list and how much it's spread and how vulnerable the people are. It's beyond time that we actually had provincial policy. This government, the problem is that they leave too much to the providers. It's their ideology to just let the providers for a nonprofit kind of run the health system. Well, that is not good enough. They have not done it so far. They're not going to do it. And uh, and we need the funding to back it. And we need regulation that improves, finally improves the staffing levels. So requires a minimum care standard that would protect the residents and the staff. In long-term care, the conditions of work are the conditions of care. It's the same thing. And it's in everyone's interest that that happens. And then in addition that they improve the wages and conditions so that it's competitive, so that they're able to attract staff and good people who will stay. And so there's some continuity of care for people. Plus, you have to think if there's young people or people out there that are transitioning from one job to another, here's a situation. I mean, you know, the, the, the government was talking earlier on, the Ontario government, about opening up a porthole both for volunteers and for job uh, placement there. Um, again, if these jobs were made more attractive, I'm sure there'd be more people banging down the door uh, to do this. And again, as our demographic gets older and the baby boomer population goes through all of this, this is going to last for another 25 years. There's as much opportunity here as there is problem. Would you agree with that? I mean, this is the chance for to turn sure. this around. Yeah, everything you said. I mean, one, the provincial efforts at recruitment are long overdue and very, very much welcome. You know, they've needed some help in recruiting, but you have to improve, you have to improve the conditions in order for it to be attractive for people to come. And that means full-time jobs. It means decent pay and some benefits and protections. You know, it means working in a place where the work is not so hard that it burns everybody out. You know, it means that there's enough support, enough workers, a, a care standard that would protect, you know, so that there's enough, people to provide the care and there's total consensus total consensus among the families the residents all of the advocates the public interest advocates the unions the health professionals that the key issue in long-term care is staffing they need more care so it would be amazing if if what could come out of this finally would be an improvement in the levels of care it would be the, the only silver lining here Natalie, here's what the uh, what the premier had to say on all of this. We're going to uh, take care of them. Uh, we're going to give them a, a, a bump. But uh, again, uh, those those PSWs are heroes. They they deserve ten times more than what they're getting. Uh, the the reality is is that feasible in the in the long term. Uh, but uh, they deserve more. We're going to give them more, uh, especially until we get through this uh, pandemic. So what are your thoughts of, of what the Premier had to say, Natalie? Well, when? When is it coming? Yeah. I mean, they've left it to the providers for a nonprofit to choose whether or not they're providing top-ups. They've provided some money to do that during the pandemic, um, and that's it. So that is, I mean, as I say, it didn't happen in all the years before. I mean, we've been doing reports and protests and 
everything, everything possible to advocate for improved staffing, improved conditions, and it hasn't happened. So when, I mean, this is not just of this government's making, in fairness, you know, I'm not, we're not partisan, we're not blaming anyone in that way, but, but it is in this government's hands to deal with. And, you know, it can't be temporary because we'll just go back to the same situation once this is over. Uh, you t- you talked about some of these homes uh, being held by shareholders and large companies and conglomerates and stuff. Uh, do do you think that this? And again, we all know these are for profit. But but how will that change the discussion on you know what? As well as generating revenue here, you also have a personal responsibility. This is healthcare after all. Will we have those discussions? Well, they have to be regulated. I mean, I hope that we'll have the discussions, like we're for the first time having serious discussions now about why it's in the public interest to improve the wages and working conditions of the PSWs. It's not a, it's not, you know, a union being opportunistic in the middle of a pandemic. This is a problem because it's a problem for care and the conditions of work are the conditions of care. You know, I hope that that continues, but We've been waiting for a long time for improvements to long-term care, and we represent half a million people, including the families and the patients and the public interest groups and the unions and the health professionals. And everyone has been fighting together and speaking with one voice on this for a very long time. If we don't get it now, I don't know when we're going to get it. So now, while there's a spotlight shining on the situation, on the injustices that are happening, on the, you know, levels of care that are so inadequate in the best of times and completely inadequate to deal with this situation, I just hope that we can get the change now because I just don't know how we're going to get it. There's such a powerful lobby on the other side. They're so connected to politicians. It's been impossible to overcome for 20 years and we just need to finally do this. Uh, it's. I remember post 9-11, uh, firefighters were the heroes. Are, are we going to feel the same way? Are we feeling the same way about healthcare workers now, PSWs now, everything from a PSW to a doctor? Oh, yeah. Heroic is uh, is the word to describe what's happening. People are, you know, they're engaging in a lot of self-sacrifice. They're putting themselves at risk, and, and they're giving up an awful lot. To take care of people, it is uh, at the best of times. People do that. I mean, there always there are always infectious diseases in healthcare. People are always uh, engaged in a fair amount of self sacrifice. I think uh, I think these are extraordinary conditions, extraordinary times. This is a very contagious virus that is also has a you know is very lethal, uh, and uh, and people have I think shown um, sorry. I'm moved because people are dying, right? In long-term care, mm. the PSWs are dying now. And uh, I think they have shown the very best of humanity. Natalie Mara has been with us, Executive Director, Ontario Health Coalition. Uh, again, these are our heroes, and we have neglected them for a long period of time while they look after the people who we can't look after. Uh, Natalie, good luck. Stay strong. Uh, I think there's a lot of momentum behind you. I hopefully, and hopefully you will see changes moving forward. Good luck and thank everybody that you come in contact with in regard to this for the great help that they're doing. Uh, Canadians truly do support our healthcare workers. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for telling their story. Natalie Mayra, Executive Director, Ontario Health Coalition.
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's been some interesting chatter as uh, as we as we get more information. Uh, it's, it's funny we have more questions than answers. But again, the, these are times, very fluid times, and we certainly uh, we don't have all the answers. The experts do not have all the answers at this time. It's just simply uh, too fluid a situation. But yesterday, seeing models. The other day, seeing models that you know uh, we're not at the destination, but we can certainly see uh, the end in sight, which is a good thing as we slowly start to round out the top of this curve. But as uh, we're also hearing uh, chatter of a second wave and how this could reappear in the fall. Let's bring in Dr. Khalid on all of this. Uh, Ahmad, thanks so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Great to speak to you, Scott. Thank you. So it's very odd, doctor, because, you know, the other day we're, we're, we've got a little bit of positivity in our voice because there is sort of a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, the premier talking about we may start to see things start to open up by the 24th of May uh, weekend and such. But again, cautioned on all of that. And yet we're hearing that there could be a second wave and some are concerned about what might happen in the fall. What are your thoughts on all of this? How do we interpret all of this? I think the message is still valid, what we said a few days ago, which is it's a positive message coming out of the data that we are flattening the curve. We wanted to know for the longest time is, do our interventions, our efforts, all of us collectively to really stop this pandemic working? And we got the answer from the data and the evidence telling us that uh, we are uh, really getting ahead of this pandemic. Now, on the issue of the second wave, it's very common that with uh, infectious diseases like COVID-19 is that once we start sort of opening things back up, uh, we see a relaxed sort of a steady state of the disease over a period of time, that when people start getting back into the communities, those people who have COVID-19 can give it to others. So that's what we mean by a second wave. And that's, I think, what the Canada, uh, the medical officer was trying to get at, which is this idea of herd immunity. So the more of us that are either get COVID-19 and become immune to it, or in the development of a vaccine, then we won't worry as much about the possible reinfection or new infections of people. Is there any reason to believe that the second wave could be greater than the first? There is no indication on that now. It's actually very hard to be conclusive on that one. But what we do know, uh, which is a bit reassuring, is our first wave we seem to have been really able to address it. And by that I mean is that our health system was resilient and able to actually address what we expected to be a catastrophe, which turned out to be best case scenario for us. So the same hope is the second wave. I think that, you know, having gone through COVID now for a couple of weeks, more than a month now, we know what we're able to do and what we should be looking forward to. And by that, I mean is that we have good protective equipment in place. Our healthcare system is ready to uh, build surge to a, an increased number of cases. And also our community members are now uh, are, are in a place where they're able to actually adapt to a possible increase in the number of cases. How concerned are you, doctor? And, and you know, when you're, we're, we're talking about the second wave and, and how strong that will be, how concerned are you that this could mutate in some way and come back uh, stronger? I mean, is this just conspiracy or, or, or are we concerned about that? I mean, we are concerned. Uh, I think it'd be foolish not to be concerned. It's definitely a consideration. But we also have to remind ourselves that we have no evidence to prove that it is mutating. You know, we, the, the, the virus has, we've known about it now since December. It started in Wuhan, China. We haven't seen a mutation of it yet. Will that happen over time? Maybe, possibly. But as of now, I don't think that's the main concern here. And hopefully that soon enough we'll have the vaccine in place. 
that will at least be able to address the majority of the strains of the virus. And if it mutates, then we will address it then because we already have a baseline vaccine developed for it. Uh, is a second wave bound to happen as you slowly start to release uh, regulations and you slowly get back to normal, no matter how you do that, we're bound to see some sort of second wave? Yeah, I think that it is, it's very common to see a second wave in pandemics like this one or infectious disease outbreaks by nature that the majority of us have been staying at home, isolated from other human beings. And when we start relaxing things, and I think this is why the government is trying to play this very smartly by not opening things up right away. I think they're just preparing us to what's about to come ahead, which is this slow and gradual opening up of things so that we, in case we see the second wave happening, we're not overwhelmed, we're taking it slowly. So expect that after May, when we sort of start relaxing things, that we will see an increase in the number of infections, and that's what we mean by a second wave. Uh, I believe we touched on this yesterday, but we're certainly hearing more about this. As a vaccine does become available, are we going to have a debate on whether we should have the vaccine or whether we should be taking the vaccine, even though we're all sitting indoors? Are we going to forget about all of this? No, I think that the vaccine, once it's available, we're going to have to go through a bit of testing to see that it is safe uh, and how we're going to administer it. So I don't think it's going to be so, I mean, I think that the, from what we're seeing is that the progression towards having the vaccine and the treatment is going very fast compared to previous uh, disease outbreaks. So there's optimism in the vaccine and the treatment that's being developed. But again, we just have to wait to see what uh, how the humans react with once we start introducing its population base. Uh, there's been lots of chatter in the past uh, from anti-vaxxers about this sort of thing. Yeah. Will this open up that debate again, or will it be, no, if we if we want to get out, we have to have this thing? I would be surprised if that debate doesn't happen again. I think, uh, Scott, you will always have people who firmly believe in the benefits of vaccine, and there are people who will always doubt its, uh, its effectiveness uh, or its possible side effects. I think that discussion will happen regardless, and I think... Our goal is that we educate the public as much as possible on the side effects, on the possible side effects of the vaccine, but also the benefits of it and why it's important. And the decision at the day is at an individual basis. It, we're not going to, we're not at a point where we're going to, we're never been at a point where we're forcing people to get vaccinated. Uh, I think the same philosophy will be adopted moving forward. Uh, the the premier with uh, Alex Pearson, one of our, our talk show hosts, was saying that, uh, you know, if things keep moving in the direction that they are moving in, that we may may see a uh, a slight reduction in uh, in some of these regulations by the long weekend in in May. Do you see that being feasible? I think so. Uh, I'm very optimistic. I think that's the only one of the things that we can hold on to, Scott, right now is optimism. Uh, and I am optimistic that we're moving in the right direction. I think that looking at the data, reviewing what's coming out of the government, looking at all the reports coming out of the field, we are seeing very positive signs. Uh, we are definitely flattening the curve. I think that's all going to lead us to this idea that we will have uh, sort of some kind of normalcy again. I think the important part here is that we don't want to we don't want to set up false expectations. Don't expect that everything's going to be back to normal come May. We will gradually step-by-step step, start seeing what we can open up just to make sure that we're testing our system as we go along.
Uh, you know, as we've talked over the course of this pandemic, doctor, we've talked about, uh, you know, how we adjust to the new reality of where we are. Uh, you talked about false hope and, 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 you know, looking and reading too much into this, but it's amazing how people's attitudes have changed in the last 24 or 48 hours. Once we have seen here in Ontario that it is working, that we are seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. That does help. It goes a long way, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, listen, if you ask me a year ago, could I have ever imagined what that our communities and, and the people of Canada and everywhere across the world are able to adapt so fast, I would have said there's no way. One of the hardest things to implement in policy world is behavior change. It's so hard to change the behavior of people. But what COVID-19 has showed all of us is that we are adaptable. We are resilient communities. We adapt to our emerging emergencies and crises. We're very good at seeing a situation, understanding what the problem is, looking at the solutions, and trying to get ahead of it. I think that this is a testament on all of us, on the collective effort of people to really try to address a crisis that is happening in our country that affects all of us. Are you as concerned about this virus now as you were, say, a few weeks ago? When were you the most concerned about this? Or is I, I are you still feeling the same way? I am still concerned, but my concern has shifted focus. I'm really concerned about our long-term care, uh, our senior citizens, our elderly population, our long-term care facilities. That is a massive concern of mine right now. Uh, I, was, I think I'm the most concerned I've been in COVID-19 sort of trajectory over time is now with the senior citizens because our elderly populations is of, our upmort, uh, of, is of importance to all of us. I think we know from the evidence that COVID-19 affects our older population much uh, bigger and harder than it affects our younger population. So when we're seeing those reports coming out of our long-term care facilities uh, that are alarming and scary, I am very much concerned. Uh, will this change, and there's certainly lots of chatter about this now, do you think this will change the way we think about healthcare workers uh, moving forward? Because, again, these problems have been here for a long time, uh, COVID-19 shedding a lot of light on the issues that have already been there. Do, do you think this will make the country look differently at its healthcare system and the people who work in it? Absolutely. I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of that. For the longest time in the healthcare world and in, in, the, in the health research system world, we put very little value into our public health intervention and our public health professionals. So those are medical doctors or researchers or policy people who focus on things like COVID-19 and pandemics. And that's what's okay, understandable for the most part, because if we, we don't see it, if it doesn't affect us, we don't believe in it. I think what COVID-19 has showed everybody is that uh, we need to play, uh, place a lot more emphasis on our public health infrastructure and our public health workers and professionals uh, and, our, uh, and our frontline staff, and that maybe the, the focus should shift away from other priorities and put it onto strengthening our existing health system and to reform our long-term care centers for sure. It will be interesting to see how this does shift priorities, especially when it comes to uh, government spending. And, and, you know, in the end, everybody's asking questions. Why is why? How did we arrive here? Why are these people not paid what they're supposed to be paid? And at the end of the day, money has always been an issue, always been an issue with health care, uh, simply because it's 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 just it's, it's so expensive to administer for obvious reasons in the care that that's involved here. How do you think this is going to change the discussion about money? Do you think that it, um, because of what we're doing in technology, we've made some efficiencies here that are going to make all of these things possible. But again, at the end of the day, it all comes down to, you know, is the cash being directed where it needs to go? Uh, what have we learned from this as far as 
financing all of this? Can we do it better? I think that this is an excellent discussion to have. I think that's part of the sort of the, the, the thinking around what to learn, how to move forward. Financing is one, one, one problem we're having, is that how much money can we put into changing our healthcare system? But also we have to remember that healthcare delivery in Canada is by the provinces. So we will also have this institutional barriers. And by that I mean, you know, the federal government gives cash contributions to our provinces, and the provinces deliver, decide how to deliver care. That model might need to be thought of again. Uh, that's, you know, how we deliver healthcare might change so that we're amping up uh, innovation and technology. We're improving telehealth. We're introducing apps that get ahead of uh, getting the symptoms uh, to the, our healthcare professionals and then being able to address it, how we deliver medications. My hope and my goal, Scott, is we saw SARS in 2003. Uh, m- much of what we learned from SARS seemed to have worked, but a lot of it was neglected. I hope that COVID-19 presents yet another window of opportunity for the government and for everybody involved uh, into really setting up our systems so we're able to address the next crisis that will happen. You know, we uh, I've had this discussion with uh, with others in the healthcare uh, industry that were on the front lines. You know, it seems uh, post 9-11 firefighters were the true heroes uh, yeah. of the day that emerged out of that. Are, are we going to see the same thing with our PSWs, with our, with our frontline healthcare workers? That is the goal and the hope. I, I think that, you know, it's, I have many of my colleagues, I'm a medical doctor myself, I'm not a clinician, but my, 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 my medical doctors who are on the front line, my friends, you speak to them daily and the amount of stress that they're under is, is profound. And I, so I hope that the, the general public, we all uh, are in understanding and appreciation of our healthcare front, uh, frontline staff. And this is not just medical doctors, I'm talking about nurses, our janitors, anybody who's on the front lines who are trying to get ahead of this, I think we need to sort of amp up our appreciation of what they offer and, and to really not just do that, I think it's very important that we start building structures and mechanisms to support them. And to be very practical here is that what about their families who a lot of those healthcare workers who are going to the front lines leave families behind and we need to figure out better ways to support them so they can take care of our, our health. Why don't you think healthcare has got the attention that it has? And, you know, and I, I don't want to point out other points in the government and such that have, but, um, you know, it, it seems that this isn't as fashionable as some of the other causes that seem to be getting our attention. And, and as we've said, this is a case of, of, you know, if the people want the money put there, then politicians, if they want to be elected, they're going to have to listen to them. Why don't you think this has been represented better in the past? I mean, I it's just part- like these people just work so hard, they keep quiet and they go home. Well, I think partly is that there is this notion that healthcare providers, especially physicians, uh, are paid high salaries. And so yeah. there's a general rhetoric that, you know, you're being paid for the work that you do, which is fair. It's a fair assessment to make. But I think also with the change of government that happens every few years, the priorities change. And so I think that we, we need to capitalize on this window of opportunity to figure out how do we support our healthcare workers. And I think, again, I go to the point I made earlier, it's not just about the medical doctors here. There are many nurses and other allied healthcare professionals, our janitors, our staff in the hospital, who are also, we need to look into how to support them. We see this problem with long-term care centers and home facilities where the part-time work is not happening and it's actually uh, increasing the number of infections in long-term care centers. We need to change the, that model of delivery. So I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned here. I just hope that we're capitalizing on them, we're documenting them, and we're going to actually act on them once COVID-19 is behind us. 
One thing we've certainly seen uh, as this uh, pandemic has crossed the country is is how differently provinces handle it. Now, that being said, not everybody is, is, is with the same situation. All provinces are different in that respect. And health care, as you mentioned, is delivered by the province. At what point does should the federal government step in? Because this seems like this should be something that's universal across all provinces. This is something that should be mandated to be consistent from province to province. That's an excellent question. Uh, uh, researchers around the world, including myself right now, are working together and actually answering that question. So uh, myself and others are, are sort of convening and trying to figure out why has there been this patchwork policy? Why is it that the provinces and the federal government can't seem to align themselves on how to address a pandemic like COVID-19? And is there a way for us to do that, given our structure of how we run things in this country? So that is an answer, unanswered question right now, but something we're all looking into. And something that we're even seeing in the U.S. as the states are grappling with this differently than what the federal government is there. It's, it's, it's not like it's a Canadian-only problem. No, it's not, because the states has a similar model in the sense that the states get to decide how they run their health care. And, so it, and we've seen it in other countries as well. This is the whole thing about uh, institutional barriers. So federal versus provincial, state level versus federal level. So that will play out differently in different countries, but it causes a problem. Can we not get into a uniform, comprehensive, national strategy that supersedes any provincial uh, sort of jurisdictions and really gets at the core of the population rather than the provincial health. Uh, as we move forward with this and, and, and you know, we start to have these discussions uh, coming out of this uh, pandemic, um, is it something we can do? Can we bring all provinces together on this, or are we just so different that's an impossible task? I think that we can, and we've seen that with COVID-19. Although that the healthcare is delivered by the provinces, we've seen that the leaders of the different provinces are really working collaboratively with the federal government, and, and vice versa, the federal government is working with the provinces to get ahead of this. Because, uh, Scott, I think everybody uh, who's around the table making those tough decisions for the country realizes that it is a national thing. So what happens on Ontario will impact British Columbia and vice versa. We're not in isolated structures. We're one country. We don't have borders between the provinces. So it will affect all of us. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, faculty member in human and social sciences and health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. I'm sure we'll chat again and be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The family starts doing something together and the dog feels that it is not involved. The dog just kind of gets involved. Uh, just kind of jumps right in, per se. Uh, good afternoon. It is the Scott Thompson Home Show. Uh, welcome to the home. Uh, Will Erskine is back at the station keeping us on air. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. Facebook and Twitter as well. You'll find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting there for you as well. All right. Um, you know, we've talked about lots of people who... Uh, unfortunately, have lost their job or been displaced because of COVID-19. Uh, but for those of us that are lucky enough to still have our jobs and are working from home and able to keep uh, things moving, even if it is at, at a reduced uh, rate or a reduced sentence, uh, a reduced sentence, reduced, uh, reduced format of some sort, um, you know, we're making it happen. 
but as we aren't going out, as you may have noticed this, uh, you know, Scott Radley made reference to this the other night that his car is getting like eight weeks to the gallon now uh, because he's not in it as much. And, you know, my wife was chatting with our uh, insurance company and saying, hey, wait a sec, we're not driving. Uh, and, and all of a sudden you become an occasional driver. So uh, with the lockdown, um, in some ways, it's saving money for some people. Let's bring in uh, Don Fox, Senior Executive Financial Accountant, IG Private, or sorry, Consultant, IG Private Wealth Management. And of course, you can hear Planning Your Financial Future every Saturday morning with Don and Andy at uh, at 8 o'clock. He is with us now. Don, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott. Good to hear from you. I was unaware that it was a dog participation day. I, my Jack Russell will be happy to join in. Well, you know what? Next time we're going to get a hoot nanny going on here. We'll start the howling from your end, and maybe we can get it all the way down to my end. You never that would know. Be great. He's looking for yeah, things usually, to do, although he is probably more fit than normal because he's going on one to two walks every day right now. So, you know what, Don? It's hilarious. You should say that because for fun, because our dog is just over a year old, so he's kind of still growing and filling out. And uh, so the other day I, I got on the scale, weighed myself, and then picked the dog up and got on the scale. And not a word of a lie, the dog has lost three pounds. And it's lost three pounds because <laughs> it's getting taken for a walk every single day. Usually, oh, and sometimes even more than once by different members of the family. So, yeah, the dogs are losing weight, but I don't think I am. Yeah, it's kind of funny how that works sometimes. And it's kind of, we, we, we hold up the leash and our do- dog is actually running away from us now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's enough of this. Let me just sleep in the middle of the day. That's right. Yeah. And here's the other thing. What happens when everybody goes back to work? Because they're used to having everybody home all day. And then all of a sudden, you know, everybody's going to... discussion is like, okay, that's going to be quite the uh, turn of events for... That'll be when the COVID really kicks in for the dogs. That's right. That's right. But, you know, like you said, they'll probably sleep for three or four days anyway. They won't even notice that you're gone. (laughs) All right. So, you know, many have talked about, uh, especially on the show on Saturday mornings, we've talked a lot about, you know, how we can get some of this aid to people, how we can, uh, you know, gain from some of these, uh, the, the money that is flowing out of of government, but there's some of us that are still lucky enough, fortunate, knock on wood, to still be working. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't know if it's helping me any at all, but it seems that people are having a little bit of extra money in their genes as a result of all of this. Absolutely. It's interesting. I, I've, I've spoken to a lot of clients, and most are saying, you know, I've never seen my credit card bill so low. And yeah. it's because, just like you're saying, eight, eight weeks to the gallon, um, you know, you're not buying gas, you're not going out to restaurants, there's the entertainment isn't available, and uh, at the end of the day, that part of your budget is pretty much non-existent. You might have the odd takeout, but other than that, so just as an uh, interesting note, I, I kind of did a quick mock budget, and let's say you went out to get a coffee every day. Well, that might be 2 bucks a day times 20 days. That's 40 bucks. Dinners might be 75 bucks a week times 4 is another 300 bucks. Entertainment of some sort, I don't know if it's movies or a show or something, 100 bucks. I'm certainly not traveling, so if you're spending 2400 uh, mm. a year on vacations, which isn't hard to do, that's 200 bucks a month. Um, that car insurance discount you mentioned, Scott, that would be maybe 10 bucks a month. Now, mm-hmm. to offset that, there might be an alcohol increase, so add back that 100 Yes, bucks a month. there might be more food and booze as a result of all of this. Yes, yeah, that so has been factored add in. back a couple of things. And um, oh, hair. Uh, there's at least 100 bucks a month. Um, maybe not you, Scott, but uh, you know, our, our wife. No, uh, not me. <laughs> so I added, I did a quick, just uh, you know, 
check and balance here, and that adds up to $650 savings. In this example, everybody's is going to be different. But just as a mm-hmm. quick analysis, you could, that's $650 that you normally wouldn't have at the end of each month. And absolutely, there's money that could be used. So certainly, if, if you are secure with your job, then what a great opportunity to be investing because you could be adding to your kids' RESPs for education. Um, top up, do your RSP early this year. Why wait till the market goes back up to buy or add to the tax-free savings account? So there is opportunities. Um, I cushion that, though, with the fact that you do have to be secure with your job. If you're not, definitely bank that money and have that available in case there is a, you know, if you're working four days a week instead of five or um, lose your job entirely. But uh, I know there's some that are taking a 20% discount off their earnings um, to allow everybody to keep working. So, again, um, take that as you will. But at the end of the day, it's really just coming down to making a budget. And, you know, I, I had a, a friend or have a friend who's in the banking industry, and they, were, and they were saying that they are incredibly busy. And they're incredibly busy because some people are at home, and they're taking the opportunity to check all of their, their finances out to make sure if they can get a better deal on here or there or, or do other things. Uh, a lot of people are jumping online banking that weren't on before. So these institutions are, are busy as people are, are looking for some sort of light here. Everybody's trying to grab onto technology. It's kind of forced us to, and whether it's banking or anything else, it's like, what an opportunity. We can't just show up now. We have to do it technology-driven. So, yes, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of people learning the ropes as far as online banking, amongst other things, including you know, our clients are now hopping on our, our websites. Uh, we all, we've mm-hmm. always offered you know, paper every quarter for their statements. Now you can get online statements. So I'm sure they're right. getting a big flux of that at this stage. But, you know, there is uh, even websites for um, right, right with our uh, Canadian government, a CRA website. There's a, if you go under the CRA.ca website, they're under money and finances. Then you go to managing your money. There's actually a budget planner right in their website. And it's actually not bad. Uh, my Wi-Fi isn't that great where I live, but for you know, I looked. I uh, did a quick tour before the show here, and it is. It does go through a lot, but you can actually save it there. And this is. You don't even have to log in with your own account number. This would be. You'd be anonymous, and you at least could have, you know, an idea of what you're spending each month. And this is a good opportunity to be talking to your insurance company, to be talking to your credit card company, to be co- talking to whatever services you may have to see if you can adjust any of these things at this time. Oh, absolutely. They don't do things without you calling. So like you said, the car insurance, absolutely, there's a, a discount. I think my son got like $114 um, savings on that. I'm not quite sure what we have because we also made the – it was online, mm-hmm. so they're going to get back to us on that. Um, credit cards, they are dropping the rates almost in half. But again, they, you have to make that call first. So they're going from, call it 20% to 10.99% on most companies. And so, yeah, there's, there's savings to have at this stage. I think everybody is, understands the magnitude of what's going on, and they are trying to help out. Um, so also, they, it's, good, it's good PR for everybody to do their part, too. All right, Don Fox has been with us, Senior Executive Financial Consultant, IG Private Wealth Management. Make sure you're listening to Planning Your Financial Future with Don and Andy every single Saturday morning. Don, as always, thank you so much. Uh, next time, we'll line the dogs up. <laughs> Absolutely. He'll, he'll, he'll be barking at that idea. <laughs> there you go. All right. You take care, Don. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.